are going to be looking at a fascinating parable of our Lord that he told while he was in Jericho getting ready to head up to Jerusalem. That parable is in Luke 19. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. One of the reasons that this parable is so interesting is because of its historic connection. Jesus took an event that happened when he was a little baby, and he uh, talks about this event. And, and the people there in Jericho, all of them, would have been familiar with what this event was. This would be very similar to me uh, maybe using World War II and the events of World War II to draw out some kind of spiritual lessons from that conflict. It's something that we're all aware of, and some of you have even lived through, and some lost brothers or fathers or uncles in that conflict. Well, this was very similar to what Jesus was doing. We do this uh, uh, culturally quite a bit. The, the song Onward Christian Soldiers became popular in the United States during and after World War II. It was written in England uh, about 60, 70 years before that, but it became popular here because... We, it, the song was about fighting the forces of evil, marching against the, the, the spiritual enemy. And America saw itself doing that and fighting the Nazis. And we are doing that, uh, struggling against evil in the spiritual realm. See, we see uh, some event in, in our world and we see some spiritual analogy. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is drawing spiritual analogy out of a historic event. Now, let me uh, give you the historic background of the parable that we're going to be looking at, because I think that helps explain some of the peculiarities of this particular parable. In 47 AD, a man by the name of Herod was appointed governor of Galilee. This is the guy that, uh, if you have any Middle Eastern history, is known as Herod the Great. Uh, over the next 10 years, Herod extended his influence and control, expanded his territory from Galilee all the way through the entire area that we now know as Syria and Lebanon to the north and to the east and to the south. He extended his control over Judea and Idumea. And he did all of this as an ally and in the name of Rome. So the Roman Senate appointed him as king over the entire territory. But Herod's uh, rule was plagued by constant intrigue. He had ten wives and uh, a large number of sons. And these sons were always trying to figure out how to get Herod out of the way so one of them could rule. Every time Herod would write a will, naming one of his sons a successor, somehow that son, either in fact or in Herod's imagination, was discovered to be plotting to kill Herod. And Herod would find out and he'd have that son executed. In all, Herod wrote six wills and executed as many of his sons. His fifth will, the second to last one, named his youngest son Antipas as the successor for the whole kingdom. And the reason he chose him is because that son had not been involved in any of the intrigue yet. And his two oldest sons, uh, Archelaus and Philip, had been accused by another son, Antipater, uh, being disloyal and, and plotting their father's um, uh, assassination. Well... Turns out that it was really um, Antipater who had it in for his father. Herod found that out, had him executed. All of this was happening almost exactly at the same time that Herod received a visit from some rulers from the east. We know them as the Magi. They came looking for the king of the Jews. Herod found out 
king, this new king was to be born in Bethlehem. So he had all of the male children of Bethlehem under the age of two killed. He was trying to kill Jesus and remove just one more challenge to his throne. The angel had already warned Joseph, so Joseph and Mary and Jesus were already out of town on their way to Egypt uh, to escape. But right at this time, Herod rewrote his will, naming his oldest son, Archelaus, as the heir to everything, and the other two sons, Philip and Antipas, as governors under him, under, under Archelaus. The problem is this will was written just five days before Herod died, and it had not yet been ratified. So, Here's Herod has a new will, he dies, and there's all this confusion, all this argument about who really should be the successor. Um, Philip, or excuse me, uh, um, Antipas said he should because his will was the last ratified will. Archelaus said, no, mine's the last will, I should be. Ended up, they all had to go to Rome to have Augustus, the emperor, sort it all out. Because even though Herod was king, he was king under and at the pleasure of the Roman Empire. Okay, Archelaus was supposed to be the new king of the whole territory, the new king of the Jews. But some of the Jewish leaders saw this as an opportunity to go and appeal to Augustus to let Judea become independent, have their own ruler, set their own government. So they sent a delegation to argue against Archelaus. Antipater, or excuse me, uh, Antipas also sent uh, or went there himself to argue that he should become the king. And it was a mess. It took Augustus a long time, many months, to sort it all out. And during that time, there was all kinds of political maneuvering going on. But what uh, Augustus finally decided was just to divide the kingdom into thirds, give a third to each son, and be done with it. Well, Archelaus got Judea and Samaria. Judea is where Jerusalem and Jericho are. So he comes back, and he is none too happy with these Jews who opposed him. He lost over two-thirds of his kingdom, and so he's not feeling good about this. So in anger, he killed over 3,000 Jewish leaders, that predominantly in the area of Jericho, which was his capital, which is where his palace was. He also went through the ranks of his own officials, and discovered which ones had been supportive of him and his interests, which ones had not. Those that had not were either dismissed or executed. Those that had supported him were promoted. See, this, is the, this was the historic event. Now, as an aside, eventually Archelaus proved so brutal to the Jews and the Samaritans that the Romans got rid of him and set up Judea as a province under direct control of Rome where they sent out a procurator. And by the time Jesus is telling this story, there is no king there. There's a procurator. Pontius Pilate was the procurator. But anyway, all of this intrigue around Archelaus happened in most of the people he's talking to in their lifetime. Many of the people around Jesus had lost an uncle or a father or a brother or a friend there were a lot of people executed at that time. So the, this parable would have had a powerful impact on them. Let's uh, take a look at the parable now. Let me just start with the introduction, the verse 11. Luke 19, 11. 
While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, Jesus had just finished telling them in the verse above. The reason he came was to seek and to save the lost. We're told that while they were thinking about this, kind of while that was soaking in, Jesus decided to tell them this parable to help them better understand what was going to happen and understand what was going to be expected of them. See, they were all gathered there in Jericho, getting ready to, to head up to Jerusalem for the Passover. A Passover feast was one of the times, in fact, it was the primary time when everybody went to Jerusalem. All the Jews were expected to go to Jerusalem. So all the Jews who lived in the north and all the Jews who lived in the east would come through this choke point of Jericho. So there were thousands of people there, all from all the areas that Jesus had been traveling through and ministering to and, and, and teaching in. They're all there gathered on their way to Jerusalem, this huge mob. There's a lot of energy there. There was a lot of momentum there. And Jesus knows that they're thinking, this is it. This is the march on Jerusalem where Jesus takes over and we take over and the Jews get back their country. So Jesus, in order to uh, correct that thinking, tells them this parable. Just as he told them, corrected their thinking about why he had come, to seek and to save the lost. Now he corrects their thinking about what would happen next and what will be expected of them. Let me read through the the whole parable, starting verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, at least I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take this mine, his mina away and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay, now this is an allegory, an analogy. So you can't expect an absolute correspondence between the historic event and the spiritual realities. I mean, Jesus is not a a, a cruel king like Archelaus and 
and God is greater than any Roman emperor. But the points Jesus is making are very clear. He's basically making three broad points. The first point was that he was not going to establish his, his earthly, visible kingdom right away. That would come after some time. The second and primary point that he makes is that during this time of his absence, his servants have very important work that they are expected to do. And then the third and final point was that there will be a reckoning, both for his servants and for those that oppose him. Let's uh, consider these points one at a time. First of all, his earthly kingdom, his, his visible reign, would not be ushered in immediately. Jesus would, would go away, go to the Father, and, and wait for the day when he would receive the kingdom. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's where he is today. Uh, he's interceding for us. And he's leading us through the intervention of his Holy Spirit. That's the the reality of the situation in which we live. It's been nearly 2,000 years since he went away. But he is coming back. And he will receive the kingdom. And Jesus wants us to understand this. Because he doesn't want us to be confused by what's going on. And he doesn't want us to be surprised by what will happen. So he tells us what would happen. In Second Peter, Peter points out that we should not forget that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, Jesus has not returned because the time is not yet right. But in, in what, what Peter said, you see that his motivation is still the same. He does not want any to perish. His desire is still to seek and to save the lost. And that gets us to the second point. During Jesus' absence, physical absence from this earth, his servants have very important work that they are expected to do. In the parable, the, the soon-to-become king, the guy that's going to become king, gives each of his servants a mina. Now, a mina isn't a lot. It's about 20 or 30 bucks in, in today's currency. But he gives each one the same amount, and he expects each of them to use that mina for his purposes, for the king's purposes. Each one of them was supposed to, to use it, grow it, so the king would have a return on his money. Now, what is the minor? What does the minor represent? I think that it represents our salvation, our spiritual life, our relationship with God. You see, when we accept Jesus as our Lord, He becomes our master. We become His servants, and He gives us 
spiritual life. He gives us a relationship with God. He gives us His Word. And He gives us His Holy Spirit that that sets us free from sin in our lives and opens our eyes to, to, to what is good, to understand life and what's healthy, what's right. And He wants us to use this for His purposes. Now, what are His purposes? Well, He came to seek and to save the lost. His desire is that we take what He's given us and that we grow in it and that we use it to, 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 to build in to other people and to, to share Christ with those that don't know Him. That we grow in it and that we give it away so that it bears fruit. It has a return in the lives of others as well. Now, these servants in Jesus' parable doubtlessly had other responsibilities Uh, Some of them worked in the field, some worked in the house. They each had a variety of of responsibilities. But no matter what else they were responsible to do, they were each charged with growing the investment. Whatever else they did, this was their job as well. Same thing is true here among us. We all have different occupations. Uh, Some of you are, are, are students, some are teachers, Some uh, are executives, some are carpenters, some work primarily in the home, some are nurses or doctors or dentists or lawyers or whatever. We all have different occupations, but we all share the same vocation, and that is ministry. Just taking what God has invested in us and sharing it with others, reinvesting it in others, using it to grow in it, and to build others up, to share Christ with those who don't know Him. I remember when I was a college student being taught that everyone is either a minister or a mission field. I was taught that I was a student by occupation and a minister by vocation. And that's what Jesus, how Jesus is calling all of us to view ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says that our calling is to encourage one another and build each other up. 1 Peter, Peter points out that we are always to be ready to share with those who don't know God yet, to share the reason for the hope that is within you. These two things, building up believers and sharing the hope with unbelievers, are really two parts of the exact same thing, ministry. Let me explain how they relate. When we receive our salvation, we are freed from guilt. We we, we are, are then, because we are freed from guilt, we become suitable vessels for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and He lives in us. He begins to open our eyes to to life and and to truth and to reality. And He begins to show us how our sins are are robbing us, are are destroying us and the people around us. By using the Scripture, He begins to renew our minds so that we see these things and that we are progressively freed from 
from destructive, sinful behavior. This happens as we look at the truth, see God more clearly for who He is. We're not only freed from guilt, but we become more and more freed from the selfish and self-ruling lifestyle and behavior that God calls sin. Now, this is the process of spiritual growth. Along the way, we're told to speak the truth in love to each other, to others. We speak the truth in love. And when we do that with believers, it's called building them up or encouraging them. When we do that with unbelievers, it's called evangelism. It's all the same thing. Taking what God has given us, what God has, has invested in us, and reinvesting it in other people. It's simply sharing the scriptures, the knowledge of Him with others. That's what ministry is, and that's what we are all called to do. You see, when I talk about us all being ministers, this is what I'm talking about. I think it's really important that you understand this, because so often when, when someone talks about ministry, people immediately think of formal ministry, like preaching a sermon, or, or leading music, or leading a growth group, teaching a Sunday school class. And when we talk about evangelism, immediately everybody's mind jumps to going door to door and sharing a Four Laws booklet or something like that. Now, now these are places where ministry can take place. But the fact is, you can do any of these things, any of these formal ministry activities. And if you're not speaking the truth in love, you are not ministering. If I'm up here preaching and I am not speaking the truth in love, I am not ministering, either to believers or unbelievers. See, I think it really helps to look at Jesus. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what he's called us to do. Well, how did he do that? Well, he walked around talking to people. That's what ministry is. He'd walk around talking to people. He'd speak the truth in love to them. And some were saved. Others were built up in their faith. See, in any church, there are ministry needs. Positions within the programs of that church that need to be filled. That's just part of church life. But that's not really ministry. Quite honestly, the reason we have programs is simply to provide an opportunity, a place, an occasion where believers can minister, where believers can speak the truth in love to each other, where, where what God has invested in one believer in the, with the knowledge of himself and the knowledge of his word can then be reinvested in another believer or in an unbeliever. The reason for the programs is just to give an opportunity, a place for this to happen. That's what the true ministry is, is saints speaking the truth in love to each other or to unbelievers. That's the true ministry that happens in programs. Quite honestly, programs aren't the only place or even the primary place where this is to happen. This is to happen in our workplaces where we speak the truth in love, where we take whatever God's giving us and we give it to anyone who wants it. It should happen in your homes, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your, your uh, social groups. As God gives opportunity, we speak the truth in love. Ministry happens. 
God uses that to, to bring some to himself and, and to encourage and build up others who already know him. Now this does not mean that uh, we shove our opinions down people's throats. It doesn't mean we preach a sermon just because somebody asks us a simple question. It doesn't mean we climb all over people because they're doing or saying something that is wrong. That isn't ministry. True ministry starts with a smile. With a loving, gentle word. And then it grows into answering bigger questions that people feel free to ask us because they're beginning to trust us. They know that we will love them rather than condemn them and hurt them. Now, I intentionally use the term uh, speaking the truth in love because I want to emphasize both parts of that. Speaking the truth and doing it in love. Because you can't leave either out and still be effective. If I try to just speak the truth without love, it becomes brutal. It becomes legalistic. And worse than that, it miscommunicates about God who is love himself. It drives people away from him rather than draw them toward him. On the other hand, if I try to to love without ever speaking the truth, it becomes sentimentality, leaving people to, to flounder in, in their confusion, to be destroyed by the lies of the world. And it miscommunicates about our Lord, who is the truth. You see, both sides are necessary. Speaking the truth in love. And as we engage in both, we face our own inadequacy. We're confronted with our own inability to do these things. We try to speak the truth and we discover how poorly we understand the truth ourselves. And so we're forced back to our Bibles to kind of figure out what we missed. We're forced back to God, seeking the knowledge of Him, knowledge of His Word. And when we try to love, we are confronted with our awkwardness, our inability at loving. We discover how our own insecurities and sins Get in the way. Confuse the process. And we're forced back to to God in in confession for forgiveness. We come humbly to Him. Ask Him to change us, to free us from our our, our insecurities, from our sins that, that, that interfere with our ability to love. So as we attempt to reinvest what God has given us, we grow. We grow in our our knowledge of Him. We grow in our understanding of Scripture. We grow in our ability to love. That is God's design. As we grow, we simply have more to share. Like He said, to Him who has more will be given. But the opposite is also true. The one who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away. You see, when we don't reinvest, when we don't speak the truth in love, our understanding of the truth begins to slip away. We begin to become confused about what we really believe and what's really true. Our, our, Our comprehension begins to erode. And we discover that our ability to love is getting smothered by, by our own 
sins, insecurities. We begin to uh, find our lives more and more involved in, in just pursuing pointless pursuits in life, self-absorbed pursuits of wealth and of, of, of recreation, things that will never satisfy. There's no more any place for ministry in our lives. It gets crowded out because for them, if you don't grow, you atrophy, you lose. That's the principle that Jesus describes here. In fact, let's look at the uh, one servant who tried to just squeak by and do nothing. He tells the king that he was afraid of him because he thought the king was a hard man who takes what he did not put in and reaps what he did not sow. So he hid the mina and uh, didn't invest it. Keeps it hidden and tries to just give it back. And the king replies, I will judge you by your own words. You see, the king doesn't accept it as as a fact that he's a hard man. He just shakes his head and he says, If you thought I was a hard man who takes out what he doesn't put in, who reaps what he doesn't sow, then what you did makes absolutely no sense. If you think I'm as mean and demanding as all of that, you should have worked even harder. You should have tried to do even more. See, that's what would have made sense. The man, the servant there, shows that he really doesn't know the king He really doesn't trust him. And as a result of that lack of trust, that lack of faith, his behavior becomes perverse and illogical. Now, how many of us is the Lord going to say, I will judge you by your own words? We say, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but we do it anyway. Or we say... I know God wants me to speak the truth in a loving way to this person, but I'm not going to. We refuse. We we shrink back. We shut up. All of this happens because we don't know our king. We somehow have concluded that uh, the reason he tells us not to do something is just because he wants to rip us off, not because he loves us. Not because that thing will harm us and destroy us. We somehow think that he is critical and demanding, that he'll be irritated with an inadequate attempt at loving or of of speaking the truth. We think that he'll take us from never having shared the truth with anybody to preaching on street corners. We think that that if, if I give him control, he'll ask me to do everything I don't want to do. We think he's out to shame us and to diminish us and to defeat us. What kind of monster do we think he is? We act like this servant who didn't trust his king. And our lack of trust, our lack of faith causes us to ask to act illogically, perversely ourselves. You know, if we think that God is all that demanding and, and mean, then we should do everything we can to get on his good side. We should do even more. That's the only logical conclusion, but we don't. We say, I can't. I, I don't know the truth. I don't know how to love people, so I'm not going to. We don't even try. We just try to keep a low profile and sneak by. But again... That's not the design. When we do that, we live in insecurity and defeat. There's no joy and there's no growth. 
our lives become absorbed in the the discontent of self-focused pursuits. Let's look at this. Remember, a mina is not a lot. It's about 20 bucks. So you don't know much truth yet. So you don't have much skill at loving yet. Maybe all you've got is about a mina's worth, about 20 bucks worth. But the way it grows is you take a shot. You, you try to, to, to share with someone. You try to love someone. Maybe it doesn't go so well. It doesn't work so well. But you take that up with God. You come back and you talk to Him about how come it didn't work? Why did it go wrong? How come I don't feel like I really communicate? How come I don't feel like I was effective in loving this person? And when you come back to God, you discover that He's gracious, that He is gentle, that He is loving. He's not critical and demanding. He's not rebuking you for having tried and failed. As you let Him love you, you see Him more for who He is. And you start thinking about what you did or what you said and why it didn't work. And it begins to start making sense. Or maybe you go talk to another believer and find out what the Bible really says about that. You see, in that process, you're growing. Your knowledge of God has begun to grow. Your knowledge of His Word has begun to grow. Your your skill at loving has begun to grow. Maybe you're at about 30 bucks worth. But it's growing, and you are growing. That is God's design. There is no real spiritual growth without adventure. The only thing that will stop the growth process is for us to faithlessly stop, to run away and hide, give up, try to cover up. There is no standing still in the Christian life. Either we are growing or we are losing. Those are the only alternatives. But your king's desire is for you to grow. His desire for you is life and health and joy. His desire for you is personal development. The personal development you may be seeking in all kinds of other pursuits. He wants you to find that personal development in fulfilling your purpose. Which is what? Well, which is following His purpose. Seeking and saving the lost. Speaking the truth in love. Loving the people that God has put in your life. Using the opportunities to love. See, that is where you're going to find joy. Not misery and, 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 and kind of burden. That's where you'll find the joy as you grow. That's His design. You'll be challenged You'll face things that scare you and confuse you. But in that process, you come face to face with the God who loves you. You begin to see Him as He really is. So ask yourself, where is your life going? Are you growing or are you losing? What are you doing here? Whose servant are you? Let me real quickly just move on to the last point, the final accounting. Listen to verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. Nice verse, huh? Again, remember this is a a, a parable. That... uh, 
this is a historic allusion to an event. And this happened historically. Archelaus killed thousands. And so these people around would have known what would happen if you oppose a king. There are real consequences. And there are real consequences in spiritual things as well. Behind the, the, the grim imagery of, of, of this parable is the grim reality of eternal judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. He is coming again. And there will be judgment. And that judgment will be everlasting destruction. But did you notice there in Second Thessalonians what the everlasting destruction is? It is being shut out from the presence of the Lord. See, back, back in Luke, did you notice how the enemies are defined? There in verse 27 and back in verse 14. The enemies are people who did not want Jesus to be their king. So you see, their destruction, in a very real sense, is simply giving them what they wanted. Separation from Jesus. Now many unbelievers would say, I don't mind Jesus being king. He'd be better than Clinton or Dole or Perot. But kingship in the spiritual realm is far more intimate than in the political sense. For Jesus to be king means he sits on the throne of our lives. He is in charge. Making him king means that I say I trust him more than I trust myself. I listen to his word more than I listen to what people around me say or more than I even listen to my own feelings and figurings. Unlike the king in the story, Jesus takes no delight in anyone's destruction. He does not want anyone to perish. But Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. He comes and he offers eternal life. He offers a relationship with him in which one trusts him to forgive their sins and renew their minds as they walk with him in submission to him as Lord. But you see, Jesus takes no for an answer. And that no seals one's fate. It's not that that no destroys a person. That no simply leaves them in the process of destruction that is already underway. Left without forgiveness, freedom from sin, one's life becomes ever increasingly empty, filled with spiritual deadness. Separated from God, the the one that we were created to be in relationship with, a human being cannot find ultimate satisfaction or peace or fulfillment. See, these things may be tolerable in this life, but they grow to, to, to horrible proportion after this life. That is the reality of eternal judgment. Now, Jesus gave us this parable to let us know what's going on. He uh, wants us to be aware. He wants us to be informed. We live in the time between his first coming and his second coming coming. He wants to tell us how we are to live during this time. Let me just finish by reading some selections from 1 Peter. 
want you to listen to Peter's words. Peter was there with Jesus. Peter heard this teaching. So listen to what Peter says. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Jesus as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever he has been given to serve others, faithfully passing on God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves... He should do it with the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, want to acknowledge You as Lord. We want Your purposes to really become our purpose. Lord, we uh, acknowledge that we distrust You. So we hide our, uh, the little that we have and, it, and we lose it. Lord, help us to see that you have called us, that our purpose is to serve your purposes, to minister, to speak the truth in love. That's frightening because we know we're not very good at it. But Lord, as we obey you and are forced back to you to, to, to learn from you, Lord, we want to grow. We want to mature spiritually, accepting your constant grace, letting you renew our minds and change us. Lord, uh, give us the fortitude and wisdom to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen.